0: far more than China could ever consume. Debt soared. The debt-to-GDP ratio increased from roughly 170% in 2007 to 280% in mid-2015, and it probably continued to increase after the party launched another stimulus package in May. This one was in anticipation of the stock market plunge over the summer although small stimulus programs have been initiated almost every spring. Servicing and repaying the debt, most of which is owed by both private and state-owned corporations, will siphon resources away from urgent social needs, such as cleaning up the environment and providing social security for the elderly and the sick. That is because the interest and principal payments debtors pay back will go to banks and underground lenders, Unless these institutions radically change their ways, they will then recycle the money back to the same old elites in real estate and infrastructure investment, including state owned enterprises eager to invest in dubious projects abroad. In China, the market is far too weak relative to the state to shift this national trend. So even if market forces expressed a need for resources to be reallocated to important national projects, such as public health and ecological preservation, the party state would exercise an effective right of refusal. For example, Chinese President Xi Jinping's One Belt, One Road policy, among other things, built an enormously costly network of high-speed rail lines throughout central Eurasia. Meanwhile, whatever genuine benefits there might have been from the domestic stimulus programs are fading fast. Compared with the late 2000s, it now takes several times more money in new loans to increase GDP by a percentage point. That is primarily because many of the new loans are being used to pay back the old loans, which were wastefully invested in profit losing projects. Eventually, the new loan to GDP ratio will reach a point at which the cost of more stimulus exceeds any imaginable gains. At this stage, the CCP must logically stop injecting money into the economy and accept a long period of deflation. From an economic perspective, this historic transition should be imminent. But politically, it will be brutally difficult for the CCP to face the music. Even though China's rise seems to be on the verge of setting, outsiders should exercise caution in how they interpret this dramatic shift. It need not, for example, lead to China's collapse. Some who predict a Chinese collapse point to the dissolution of the Soviet Union, another half-reformed communist superpower. A more appropriate comparison would be to Japan and its lost decade, from approximately 1990 until, well, today. Following an endless, or so it seemed at the time, period of rapid growth that was linked to inflated real estate and stock market prices, Japan's asset price bubble burst, and the country tumbled into a long deflationary spiral, out of which it has still not emerged. Japan's phenomenal rise thus ended, but far from collapsing, it has remained one of the world's top economies. China, of course, differs radically from Japan not only in that it is far poorer today than Japan was in 1990, but also because its authoritarian political system seems inherently ready to inflict harm on its own people and cause perpetually mounting frictions with foreign countries. The end of China's rise will most likely hurt the CCP far more than Japan's did its elites. Even so, Saying that China's rise is ending is not the same as saying the country will collapse. Poor authoritarian countries can stagnate for decades and yet never face political collapse. Moreover, China today is not a poor country. The value of Chinese assets has surely been exaggerated by excessive monetary growth. But China is still the second wealthiest country in the world in aggregate terms and is a formidable military power. China will retain that status and continue to abrade the United States and other countries, especially throughout Asia, over territorial disputes in the South China Sea.